Are you ready to land on Mars? The landing of Insight, this week on Planetary Radio. Wow, 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 wow. Monday, November 26th, was a great day for science and space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society, this week bringing you special excerpts of our intimate little landing party in Pasadena, California. 1,000 men, women, and children united by their love of the final frontier. You'll hear from my terrific onstage panel, and from Emily Lochtwala and Bill Nye reporting from JPL just before and after the landing. And you'll hear the most exciting portions of NASA TV's live coverage at the Jet Propulsion Lab. I've compressed some of those segments to save time, but I don't think you'll be disappointed. We are at Caltech, as if you didn't know, in the beautiful Beckman Auditorium, where we are about to witness the landing of InSight, the first mission to the core of the Red Planet. In less than 60 minutes, InSight is going to experience its own not-quite-seven-minutes-of-terror. Uh, and uh, we'll be riding along, courtesy of NASA TV, right over our heads here, and our neighbor the global heart of robotic planetary exploration, the Jet Propulsion Lab, which is operated by our host. Yeah, let's hear it for Caltech. Someone who needs no introduction had pre-recorded a welcome message for our anxious crowd in the auditorium. Bill Nye here, CEO of the Planetary Society. Welcome to Caltech, where we are anticipating a fantastic celebration as the InSight lander lands on the planet Mars. It's another planet, people. This doesn't happen every day. This is a big deal. Now, once it's there, InSight will be the first probe to study seismic waves on Mars, deep in the interior of this other world. And we hope to learn more about how the old red planet formed. Some serious science is about to go down on another world. But first, the lander has to land. That's why we are cheering and rooting together as we advance space exploration in this next big step. As I often say, space brings out the best in us. And when these big moments in space exploration happen on other worlds, our world gets better. I'd like to thank Caltech for letting us use the beautiful Beckman Auditorium. And I'd like to thank all of you for coming out and sharing this moment. Back to you, Matt. Thank you, Bill. Then it was time to meet our three in-person panelists. The first person I'm going to bring out is a professor of mineral physics in the Division of Geological and Planetary Sciences right here at Caltech, where she does amazing science in the seismological laboratory. Her research includes revealing the mysteries of the interior of our own warm planet. She uses lasers, x-rays, and fantastically powerful diamond anvil cells to simulate Earth's violent core. We'll find out more about those from her in a few minutes. Please help me welcome Dr. Jennifer Jackson. He comes to us directly from the team that has sent insight to Mars, its destiny on Mars today. He is both a distinguished planetary geologist and one of the engineers who has participated in the creation of the instruments that will take us inside the red planet. Joining us here from JPL, please welcome Dr. Troy Hudson. <laughs> and now the only other person other than me 
who has been on all 841 episodes over 16 years of Planetary Radio. He is the Planetary Society's chief scientist, the leader of our education and outreach program, and the program manager for our light sail, solar sail, which we're pretty jazzed about. Please welcome my friend and colleague, a guy who received his PhD right here at Caltech, Dr. Bruce Betts. One of the many JPL guests heard from was NASA Administrator and former Congressman Jim Bridenstine. Here he is talking with NASA TV anchor person Gay Hill. You'll hear Gay a lot over the course of our coverage. I have witnessed these as a I should say from the sidelines for many years. Um, this is going to be the eighth time that we have a successful landing on Mars. Everybody knock on wood. That's right. Um, but uh, this is the first time for me to participate as the administrator. So it's Exciting, very exciting. Very nervous? Much, not nervous. Not excited. nervous. Look at very the amazing people here. Insight has been the dream of mission principal investigator Bruce Bannert for 40 years. You may remember Bruce as a guest here on Planetary Radio last May. He also narrated a video shown early in the NASA TV landing coverage. InSight is a mission to Mars, but it's much, much more than a Mars mission. In some sense, it's like a time machine. It's measuring the structure of Mars that was put in place four and a half billion years ago so we can go back and understand the processes that formed Mars just shortly after it was accreted from the solar nebula. By studying Mars, we'll be able to learn more about Earth, Venus, Mercury, even the Moon, even exoplanets around other stars. Gay Hill also talked with the other leader of the InSight mission. He's the project manager, Tom Hoffman. Seven years, and today's the day. That's right, seven years, but we're just a little over, you know, 40 minutes now, and we're going to be on the surface. It's going to be awesome. Really exciting it's stuff. All all right, so let's talk about InSight. It's using tried-and-true technologies based on Phoenix. This time, there's a bigger challenge with communication, correct? Normally, we have an orbiter that can give us bent pipe communications, but it's different this time. That's right. Most of the time when we've landed recently, we've had Mars Odyssey, which can do bent pipe communications, and so we get real-time data as we go through EDL, and we've come to expect that and actually we really, really want that. Um, in this case, our primary technology, primary orbiter is Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. And so what that's going to be doing is actually will be listening to us on the UHF. If you go to the video, you can see this. Uh, MRO will be listening to us and be getting all the primary data, and it will send it back to us, unfortunately, only at three hours after we land. So it doesn't give us the bent pipe live information It, it doesn't. As it we happens. have a couple of other sources that we're looking at. We have a Green a Bake Observatory in West Virginia. Max Planck Observatory in Effelsburg, Germany, which will be giving us UHF, but those only give us a couple of different points in time. And so we did something kind of cool this time. Uh, we brought along a couple of CubeSats called Marco, and so hopefully they, they're both working great today. Oh, fantastic. So we're hoping that they're going to continue to work all the way through EDL, and they will be giving us uh, real-time feed. So we can show how that works on the next uh, video there here. So you can see here's InSight with its crude stage, getting close to Mars. But we have two stalkers following us. They've been following us since we launched. They launched on the same launch vehicle as us. And so you can see the green there is we're sending UHF signals to them. And then they turn that around and send a much stronger signal back to Earth. We can't communicate on UHF direct to Earth with a signal that tells what's going on in the spacecraft. But Marco can. If it works for us all the way down to the surface, we're going to have some great information coming from Marco's. So Marco is basically trying to fill that gap that we would have had if we had live communication coming down to us. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So if it does not work, does it affect Insight's mission at all? No, not at all. We'll, do, we'll just be doing a little more nail biting, uh, but right now it looks like it's going gonna, it's gonna to be working, but it doesn't impact Insight at all. And we have one final way that we're going to know that we've got successfully to the ground, which is the spacecraft will phone home. Okay. Once it gets down to the ground, it'll have gone seven months through cruise, seven and a half minutes of tear, and it's going to call back and say, hey, I'm on the surface, I'm feeling pretty good, uh, everything looks good so far. And also to prep the audience, they're not, even after landing, we're not out of the woods just yet, correct? Not just yet. We have one more step that we have to do. We have to let the dust settle, quite literally. We're going to kick up a lot of dust when we land. We need to let that dust settle before we want to unfurl our solar rays. We're 100% solar powered, so it's very important that we get those out. Unfortunately, both MRO and MARCO will be out of view by the time that we have those completely unfurled. And so we're going to have to wait five and a half hours until Odyssey comes by and tells us that, yes, indeed, our solar arrays are out. So we'll definitely have a celebration when we get successful landing, but we're going to have to temper that just a little bit and wait about five and a half hours to know absolutely for sure we're in good shape. So we have immediate knowledge if we have the Marcos. So just to run it through it once again, what's going to happen with EDL? We've got some, we have the video of the show. How exactly is this all going to play out in six and a half minutes? And we can roll the video. Okay. Yeah, so you can see here we're attached to the cruise stage. We drop that off, say thank you for the ride to Mars. Uh, it burns up in the atmosphere. Uh, you can see it gets very hot on our heat shield. We're getting up in some places maybe 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit as we go through this. Uh, we're on the heat shield for about four minutes. That dissipates about 90% of the energy that we need to dissipate before we get to the surface. Uh, then we pop our parachute. We're going about 850 miles an hour when we pop the parachute. We're on that for about two minutes. Then we'll drop off the heat shield. Uh, we'll start acquiring the ground with our radar, very much like an F-16 fighter jet radar. Uh, the legs will pop out. We'll start descending. We drop for just a second, which is very terrifying for me. Our descent thrusters, we have 12 of them. They're 68-pound thrusters. Start thrusting and dropping us to the ground. Slowly, slowly, we drop down, going only five miles an hour. So in that six and a half minutes of tear, which is a little less than the seven minutes, so that's great for me, <laughs> uh, we go from 12,300 miles an hour at 75 miles above the surface of Mars. We get to the surface, we're at five and a half miles an hour. And then there is a certain honored tradition at JPL. Here's Gay Hill talking with entry, descent, and landing systems engineer Julie Wirtz. And I understand that the peanuts are going to be passed in there pretty soon? I believe that's the, that's the idea, yeah. We'll be passing around the peanuts very soon after that. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the JPL peanuts are a, a tradition that gives us a little bit of extra luck on our critical events. So if anybody out there wants to join in on peanuts and give us some extra good, good luck peanut vibe, we'd love to have it. Well, there's a story behind that, that way back when in the early days of JPL, there were six Ranger missions to the yeah. moon that failed. Yep. But then with Ranger 7, Ranger seven somebody, some, somebody passed around peanuts. Yeah, yeah, and it worked, and you don't mess with what works. So <laughs> Absolutely. it's not a superstition, it's a tradition, All and right. uh, we just give ourselves that little bit of extra luck. Back in Beckman Auditorium, it was time to talk with someone you hear regularly on our show. We have... Emily Lakdawalla, senior editor. We also call her our planetary evangelist at the Planetary Society. We don't have video, but we think we've got her on the phone. Emily, are you with us? I am. Hello, everybody. Great. You're coming in great here. So where are you at JPL? 
I am right now at the Von Karman Auditorium, which ordinarily is a museum, but it's dressed up as a media room, as it always is for major events at JPL. I'm surrounded by media friends of mine from different outlets like National Geographic and Aviation Week and NPR and LA Times. And it's just, it's always fun to reunite with all these people for every happy event in space exploration. Is the anticipation as great there as it is here at, in Beckman Auditorium? It's really funny. Everybody's kind of nervous. And, you know, uh, media, they have to prepare both a it landed and an it crashed story. So everybody's feeling kind of both things right now. We're going to wait until nature uh, does its thing, and we'll have to see if InSight successfully lands today. I think everybody expects that it will, but, uh, you know, media, they always have to plan for the worst. Yeah. Emily, <laughs> we know that you are exactly where you want to be right now. Uh, what are you most looking forward to, other than the landing itself? <laughs> I am always, I look forward to the pictures. There's going to be a picture for, taken by each lander camera. There are two of them on the lander. They've been hedging their uh, bets about whether we'll get those right after landing or not. It depends on how well the, the transmission goes between the lander and the orbiters. There also could be an image from high-rise showing the InSight lander under its parachute. That one would be available at the earliest, a couple of hours after landing, could be up to 48 hours. So we'll wait and see if they manage to pull off that feat for the third time in a row. And then um, I'm just looking forward to seeing all my scientist friends be able to relax finally, because they're all really keyed up and on edge right now, because it's, it's the scariest day for them for the rest of the mission. But everybody's in good spirits and really anticipating a good day on Mars today. Just one more question about those two cameras that are on the lander, which were not essential for science, right? But people like you who do image processing, working with these images that come back from missions like InSight, you're going to have a lot of fun with these, right? I hope to. You know, these cameras, they're, they're two pretty small ones. They're actually flight spares from the Curiosity rover. Curiosity has nav cams on its mast and has cams on its belly. And these are two flight spare, one nav cam, one has cam for Curiosity. They just tore off the back and put in a color detector instead of black and white ones. So we'll be able to see a, a flat landscape in nice uh, red color like Mars is. And so um, I'm looking forward to making animations of the, of the lander, setting out instruments very carefully. And I'm looking forward to watching the shifting of the shadows with the sun uh, rise and sunset. Um, but, of course, we won't see a changing landscape as we do on the rovers because this lander, once it lands, it's not moving ever again. All right, Emily, we'll let you get back to what you really want to do while you're over there uh, with Von Karman. <laughs> Have a great time, and uh, we'll be watching along with you. All right, go inside. Go inside at Aries. That's Emily Lakawala, planetary evangelist. Inside, instrument engineer Troy Hudson brought a couple of cool props to the Beckman stage. Jennifer Jackson and Bruce Betts will also get in on the conversation. What have you got there? So this is a 3D printed full-scale model of HP cubed. That's the heat flow and physical properties package, the instrument that was provided to InSight by the German Space Agency. And it is the heat flow probe. It is what we will use to take Mars's temperature. Uh, so this uh, support structure here houses the mole, which is the burrowing device, um, and tethers and a number of other ancillary instruments. And this whole thing gets picked up by the robotic arm from this grapple point here. It's the third thing to be deployed. It gets picked up and placed on the ground. And then the mole, which starts out inside this cylinder, begins its journey, hammering its way millimeter by millimeter into the ground over the course of about 30 days, making measurements as it goes. So this is a 3D model that shows the interior structure of the mole 
And this here is, is heavy. <laughs> it's heavy. I'm going to have to pull that out there. The, this full, full size weighs about as much as a pair of shoes and takes about as much power as a Wi-Fi router. Wow. But that enables us to dig deeper on Mars than we have ever gone on any other body. Five meters, about 16 feet. Mm -hmm. Pretty amazing. Why is it important to get the mole down that deep and sense the temperature all the way back up? So one, the thing we're looking for is the amount of heat coming from the interior of Mars. But at the surface, you have daily and seasonal temperature variations. The sun illuminates the surface and causes temperature fluctuations. And those are noise for us. They, they swamp out that signal. So to see the signal, the, the heat from the interior, we have to get deep, deeper than those surface disturbances. And on Mars, given what we expect the thermal properties of the soil to be like, that'll be somewhere below about two and a half meters. So we need to get to three to be confident we can do the science. We have enough tether to take us to five. I know you've been even more involved with those seismometers, those amazingly delicate, but well, not so delicate, but sensitive seismometers. We're gonna come They're back. Both. We'll, yeah, <laughs> we'll come back to that in a few moments. Speaking of seismology, Jennifer, I mean, just what we've talked about so far, analyzing the heat flow from the core of Mars, mm -hmm. is this the same kind of data that we've learned a lot from here on Earth? Oh, yes, yeah, on Earth, what we've, what we've been fortunate to have our multiple heat sensors in different parts of the planet. And what we know about Earth is that it varies from you know, continental regions to, of course, the mid-oceanic ridge region where it's a lot warmer. And on Mars, we expect that the variations may be smaller because the activity is thought to be less. I mean, that's one of the very exciting things, actually, to, to have these measurements from Mars because this could be a snapshot of what Earth was like three billion years ago. Wow. Yeah. We need to get back to NASA TV, but I still have one other question for you, Bruce. Uh, and it's about the significance of those Marco CubeSats. Yeah. We know a little bit about CubeSats mm -hmm. at the Planetary Society. Why are these so significant? Uh, the Marco CubeSats are significant because they're the first interplanetary CubeSats. Uh, CubeSats have become very popular in the last 10 to 20 years in Earth orbit. They're used by universities, they're used by agencies, but this is the first time they'll be going truly interplanetary. And so as mo more than anything, they're a technology demonstration that you can, you can do it. And then hopefully they will return data in real time as well. With the clock still counting down, I took time to acknowledge a few special guests in our audience at Caltech's Beckman Auditorium. I know that here someplace is Charlie Colhays. There he is. Stand up, Charlie. Because there is a navigator par excellence. He figured out how to get Voyager on its grand tour. And one more selfish one, because you heard us say that we've had 16 years of Planetary Radio, the series that I have hosted and produced over that time. The 16th anniversary for the show was yesterday. yesterday. And the guy who was responsible, thank you, the guy who was responsible, though, for making that show happen, giving us the permission to go ahead to do it, who was also the first guest on that show and has been on it many times, is the Director Emeritus, Executive Director Emeritus of the Planetary Society, Dr. Lou Friedman, who's sitting right over here. 
Okay. And I really debated doing this because you may hate me doing this, but I'm hoping that there's someone in the audience who can put a good word in for insight with some all-powerful universe-spanning intelligence called Q. Uh, John Delancey is over <laughs> sitting down here. <laughs> Just time enough for one more conversation with Troy Hudson, Jennifer Jackson, and Bruce Betts before the final countdown to the landing. Settle in. We're going to go right from our on-stage conversation into the NASA TV coverage of the last critical, nail-biting moments of Insight's perilous descent. Those seismometers. Troy, give us an idea of just how amazingly sensitive these are. The types of movement that these seismometers can see, it's the sorts of differences in space smaller than a hydrogen atom. It's, but what that means in practice on Mars, Mars has tides. There's a moon, one of Mars's moons, Phobos. It's very small. It's about the size of Los Angeles, uh, but it orbits very close to the surface. And as it orbits, it actually makes the ground move up and down, kind of like the moon does on Earth with the oceans and the ground. But on Mars, no oceans, just the surface. And it's less than a millimeter of movement, nothing you would ever feel, nothing you would ever see. But the seismometer can see it. And it, by seeing this flexure of the ground, we get an idea of how thick the crust is where we've landed. So it's very precise and very sensitive, and that's one of the reasons why we have to protect it so much, why we have that wind and thermal shield, that white dome, which is sort of our portable hole. It's almost like a bell jar that, that goes down over it. Right, right. Protects it from the sun and the wind. Uh, then within the seismometer itself, there's an evacuated container. And this container is where the most sensitive components are, and they have to be at a pressure even lower than Mars's atmospheric pressure, like the vacuum of space, in order to work properly. So we had to bring that container with us. And that's one of the things that uh, caused us some issues back in 2015. I just got to say again, the width of a hydrogen atom? Yeah. <laughs> How does this compare with seismometers that we've been using for years here on Earth? They're similar in sensitivity, uh, but the, the coupling is going to be a little bit different, and this is why we're, this is actually the first time that we can get a seismometer that's coupled to another planet. I mean, it's been about 50 years since the lunar seismometers were deployed, mm. and about 130 or so years that the first seismic teleseismic event was detected and analyzed here on Earth. At 130 years? Just where about. Was that, where was it detected? <laughs> just about. Um, well, it was detected in, in Europe, and since then there have been tens of thousands of seismometers deployed over the entire planet. This is just a really special and incredible opportunity to be able to measure the interior of another planet to measure the core, the size of the core. We don't know how large the core is or whether it has some amounts of melt inside of the core. These measurements are going to be key for understanding our own terrestrial planets in our solar system, Mercury, Venus. How can one seismometer, Troy, tell us all of this, if things go well, about the interior of a planet that's, you know, maybe only a third the size of Earth, but still pretty big. Sure. Um, well, just like a, a sonogram allows you to see inside your body by looking at vibrations of sound waves, a seismic recorder, a seismic station does the same. It looks at the movement of waves 
seismic energy that moves through the planet. If you've ever like, taken any little class in seismology, in the past, you needed to have at least three stations to be able to determine the location of uh, a, a, an earthquake. Um, it turns out with advances in the sensitivity of the instruments and also computer models and our ability to model the way waves move through a three-dimensional structure like a sphere, uh, we can, in fact, determine the position and uh, depth and distance to a quake using only a single station. Now, mm -hmm. the seismometer is more than just one instrument. There's actually six independent seismometers that are coupled together in this small package. And they can sense exactly what direction the waves are coming through in three-dimensional space. And by looking at that movement, we can determine where the quake occurred, for example. Mm -hmm. Yes, we would love to have more than one seismometer on Mars. We would love to have a whole network. And there were proposals in the past to put a network of seismometers on Mars. But as I like to say, one is infinitely larger than zero. <laughs> so we will, be, we will be taking a great leap forward in our understanding with this one seismometer set. Yes, and it could pave the way for future deployments of more seismometers on Mars. Because we're going to get such great data from yes. just having one. Right. Mm -hmm. We've seen uh, on Mars that there are fault lines, indications that there have been quakes in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and they're globally distributed, but clustered in certain locations. And mm -hmm. one thing we hope to find out is what areas on Mars are more seismically active than others. Mm -hmm. And so in the future, we might have a better idea of where on the planet we would get the best data. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Mars, maybe not as dead as was once thought, nope. but also mm -hmm. I think we're going to be picking up the impacts from meteorites mm -hmm. too, right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And also the wind dust devils could stir up enough pressure to couple with the surface and give some insight yeah. to the crustal properties. Yeah, it'll actually give us a, a better uh, understanding of the meteorite flux based upon what they detect over the course mm -hmm. of a the couple-year length of the mission. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go to you, Bruce, because as we heard, this is the eighth, this will be the eighth successful landing if it happens. Through all of these, and of course, all of the orbiters, we have a flotilla of spacecraft circling Mars, including Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter with that amazing high-rise camera that we hope might just get that shot of insight descending to the surface. Uh, what is the Planetary Society's role been in all of this as an outside but very supportive organization? Uh, it's been uh, multi-dimensional. Part of what we do is advocating for space exploration, trying to support programs, including the Mars program. Uh, we've been involved with education and public outreach with a number of the missions, including the Mars 2020 rover coming up. Uh, and uh, the MassCam-Z instrument. But Jim Bell, the president of the Planetary Society, is the principal investigator. Uh, and hey, Jim. And then we are involved with Emily uh, and uh, the rest of our team with public outreach and reporting on the development of these missions and also the results from them and basically trying to get the public excited and involved and connected to space exploration. That's, that's kind of what we're all about. And just one more plug for the 2020 rover uh, and maybe the society that finally, finally on that mission is going to carry something to Mars, which uh, people way back, way, way back toward the beginning of Lou Friedman's time and our other founders, Carl Sagan, 
uh, they've been wanting to uh, hear from the surface of Mars? Yes, it will have a ferret and a weasel. <laughs> no, it won't. It will have microphones. Uh, for the first time, we flew going back to Mars Polar Lander. The Planetary Society flew a Mars microphone uh, inside one of the instruments. Mars Polar Lander being the one major unsuccessful U.S. NASA mission. And so there is a microphone on Mars. Uh, it crashed. Uh, there was a microphone on Phoenix that wasn't turned on. So there are two microphones on Mars, little known fact. Uh, but there, for Mars 2020 rover, there are hopefully two more that will be functional microphones, one in the SuperCam instrument and one tied to the entry, descent, and landing process. But we've always, since Carl and Lou and, and Bruce, we've always been looking for this other sense. We get the beautiful images we see with our vision, but to actually hear what's going on, to add that to the feeling of Mars as a real place. Uh, we're looking forward to it. We're excited. Yeah, I left out Bruce Murray, the third of the co-founders of the Planetary Society, who, of course, uh, was uh, on this stage many times and was the director of uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab uh, uh, during a very critical uh, time in, in its Bruce existence. Caltech professor and uh, had... Your professor. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes, my PhD uh, advisor. Some of the best fun I ever had was hearing Bruce make fun of you when the two of you were together. <laughs> <laughs> he was very good at it. <laughs> And okay. A lot, a lot of information to work with. We have reached the point where we're going to pick up the NASA TV broadcast once again, and we're going to stick with this now for quite a while. When we come out of this, hopefully we will we'll have heard that InSight has successfully landed, and we may even see an image from that brand new visitor to the Red Planet. So let's go ahead and bring that up. As expected, the DSN has LOS for InSight expand. The vehicle has also performed the turn to entry maneuver. The vehicle is turning away from a sun-pointing attitude and oriented itself to enter the Martian atmosphere. Uh, this is a big first step. Uh, getting, just getting the, the cruise stage separated, uh, it's now, as, after the vehicle turns itself to the right orientation, the cruise stage is now going to be uh, f get further and further away until it's about three or four football fields away and will burn up in parallel as the vehicle enters Mars. Now you saw him earlier, that's Rob Manning. No one on this planet knows more about how to put things down on Mars without having them fall into pieces. He is the expert on landing on Mars. He also happens to be one of the nicest guys on this planet. This is the heat coming into the atmosphere. Exactly, it'll be both provide a source of drag but also thermal protection because it gets over 1500 degrees Celsius on the top of the, on this heat shield, very, very hot. Uh, but on the inside of the heat shield, it may be only a, uh, a fraction of a few degrees above room temperature. So it's a wonderful protective device to keep our lander safe. All right, so the next thing we're standing by for is? Is entry, entry. hitting through the, going through the top of the atmosphere, gradually slowing down. Right now, the vehicle's just now beginning to, we'll, very soon, we'll be beginning to feel the atmosphere touching it. Troy, aren't you having second thoughts of, about standing with your team there at JPL? I, I've been on this mission for nine years myself, and there's a lot of people both from JPL and my colleagues in Germany that I would love to be with them, but I'm here with my family, I'm here with all of you, and I, you know, I'm going to be working with them on Mars for the next you know, several months. So it's... 
I'm almost to Mars. I wouldn't rather be anywhere else. <laughs> Reggie Science reports dropping carrier power at expected. Marco A and Marco B have to train. We have other spacecraft. We are spacecraft. now receiving in-flight telemetry via the Marco relay. Uh, yes. By the way, because of the eight-minute delay, insights on the surface one yeah. way or the other now. It's already happened in the real world. This data will provide detailed information about the state of the spacecraft throughout EDL. Uh, this is wonderful news. Uh, this, this will allow us to give some, if this continues working uh, all the way to the ground and beyond, uh, we might even see a, a first picture from the surface of Mars. Wouldn't that be great? Very soon. Atmospheric entry on my mark. Three, two, one, mark. Five. You want to hold hands? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> In approximately one minute, inside is expected to reach its maximum heating rate. Oh, yes. Plasma blackout is possible during peak heating and could cause a temporary dropout of telemetry. Bruce, this just real quick explanation, plasma dropout. So as the, yeah, the, the uh, spacecraft's coming through the atmosphere, it heats up the atmosphere, it ionizes, and makes it so the radio waves don't get out until it slows down and stops doing that. It does interfere with the radio reception. And so it's possible that uh, Marco will lose that signal while it's going through this very hot entry. Radio science reports plasma blackout as expected. Troy, do you know about how fast InSight was Ground going when it hit the atmosphere? 13,000 miles an hour. Still receiving InSight telemetry via Marco. InSight has passed through peak deceleration. Telemetry shows the spacecraft saw about 8G. Marco Alpha and Marco Bravo maintain long. Radio science reports carrier detected. <laughs> Several different communications coming in. Inside is now traveling at a velocity of 2,000 meters per second. The next big step is parachute inflation. Inside is now traveling at 1,000 meters per second. Very close. Once Inside slows to about 400 meters per second, it will deploy its 12-meter diameter supersonic parachute. The parachute will deploy nominally at about Mach 1.7. Radio science reports sudden change in Doppler. That's good. That's good. Are observing signals consistent with parachute. <laughs> Marco Alpha, Marco Bravo, maintain launch status. So the radar's on. They've dropped the heat shield, and the legs have been extended. Now it's coming down on its parachute. This is when they hope to use the high-rise camera, the high-resolution camera on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter to take a picture of it while it's on shoot. We were able to do that with Phoenix and with Curiosity. Yeah. The geometry is a little less favorable where the spacecraft are right now, but we still hope we can get that image. If you've not seen those images, they are Altitude some of the most amazing the photos ever taken. Locked on the ground. Yes! Locked on the ground. <laughs> Lander separation commanded, altitude 600 meters. Gravity turn, altitude 400 meters. We're getting there. 300 meters, 200 meters, 80 meters, 60 meters, 
50 meters, constant velocity, 37 meters, 30 meters, 20 meters, 17 meters, standing by for touchdown. <laughs> Touchdown confirmed. Whoa! Have you got the audio? Oh. <laughs> Lots of fist bumping going on in there. What a relief. We've cut over to the camera over in Times Square. Boy, people are weathering the rain to see this. It never gets old. Oh my God. So we're standing by, after touchdown, it waits um, a, a couple of minutes to give us an X-band beep. And so we are standing by for that. It's a communication that comes directly to Earth from InSight. Yes, um, and, and it goes uh, to the Deep Space Network. There's also something that might be happening now, if we're very lucky, uh, InSight might be able to relay uh, a, an image or a parcel image taken just a few, a couple minutes after landing. So I'm, I'm standing by hoping to see that. Now we expect a very happen, flat field. They've landed in, uh, in our Odyssey flat pass. place. They oh, didn't need the fancy geology. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be it. a really boring landing site, right? Yes. On purpose. Yes. Well, that was the but, goal, man. But not too far away, to there's a volcanic, a volcanic uh, site that are hoping to get some information so about the roots the of that volcano. Lithium mines. So are the volcanoes on Mars dead or not? Yes. We will find <laughs> out. There, there are, there, it's hard to date things precisely on Mars because dating rocks and figuring out exactly how old they are is a very complicated process that we haven't been able to automate yet. It has to be done in the lab here. Um, the volcanic, volcanic provinces on Mars tend to be many hundreds of millions of years old by our estimates, uh, but those aren't precise yet. Um, there may have been some lava that came out on the surface more recently, but the really big volcanoes are um, quite old. They got it. Oh.
smooth, flat, and boring, just like you thought. Yeah, but not bad, considering that's what the lens covers. <laughs> oh, wow. Yay, Marco. Yes. <laughs> Bug splatter on the windshield. Congratulations. Wow. I can't take out, but it looks like there's not a lot of rocks in the field of view. But those dots you see there are very likely to be dust particles on the mm -hmm. on the lens, the dust cover, the dust which cover. will be removed. Mm -hmm. after, and we'll and get another shot yes. later on. Yes. We are standing by now for that X-band beat. Yes. Insight phoning home saying, I'm here and I'm okay. Now, why would that be important when we know we've got an image back from the surface? It, the, the beep is uh, configured to be sent when a certain amount of the uh, critical state of the lander is known. Um, that image is di very diagnostic that we've landed safely, but there's a whole bunch of other things that we can't see in the spacecraft. That, that beep is sort of an amalgamation of those, and it tells us how things are going. So the solar panels have not yet been deployed? Not yet. Or, it'll, okay. it'll be about 20 minutes or so from now. Radio science report, yes. X-band carrier detected. Yes! Happy birthday, thank you. Flawless. <sighs> wow. Flawless. Really? So we're all nominal on the surface. So the vehicle is completely nominal, reported nominal. Uh, it is, uh, it's happy. The lander is not complaining. Um, we, have a, we had a way to tell us if it was unhappy, uh, and it wasn't. It's not unhappy. It's, quite, it's, it's, uh, it's in a normal mode. So this is one of those times when the word nominal is like the greatest word in the English language. Right? <laughs> the landing first image and good health check-in from InSight on the surface of Mars, as a thousand of us witnessed it in Caltech's Beckman Auditorium. It was a beautiful moment in human history. By the way, there's video of what happened there when InSight landed. You really must see Troy Hudson's passionate and poignant reaction as he learned his nine years of work had paid off. We've got the link to Ryan Chelinsky's short piece on this week's show page you'll find at planetary.org radio. It was minutes later that we took a call from someone else who had just witnessed the landing. Bill Nye is uh, waiting to talk to us. Hey, Bill, you are live in Beckman Auditorium. Oh, greetings. Greetings, everyone. <laughs> At the uh, 321 Auditorium. Where were you? We an exciting moment. We have a giant picture from the planet Mars up on a big screen here. I imagine you do, too. Little spots or dust. Of the planet Mars! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so where were you when the big moment came, and did everybody there go as crazy as we did? Yes, well, everybody went crazy. I'm at the Jet Propulsion Lab in the big viewing area, uh, and uh, it was very exciting. Everybody went crazy. We, uh, we watched it, you know, in real time, and I can't get over how the picture came back so quickly. It landed successfully. They literally wait for the dust to settle, like no joke. And then they send this picture. We sent this picture back. It's amazing. Are you there with members of the Insight team? Uh, yes, yes, a whole bunch. But they have, uh, not to disappoint you, several of them have gone back to work. <laughs> they have assignments. I guess they, they're paid, their salaries are paid by our tax dollars. It's crazy. 
And there are, there's a few moments where they didn't have to be at their de- at their stations, and so they um, they came into the big auditorium or the medium-sized auditorium and shared the moments. Sorry, I'm getting I'm getting uh, uh, how to say interacting with people with cameras. Yeah, I'm not surprised. We have one member of the team here with us on stage. Would you, you know, on our behalf, please thank, congratulate everybody there, and and tell them that they gave us a great show here at Caltech. Yes, uh, the Planetary Society is at the Beckman Auditorium at Caltech. Thanks you all. Thank you, Bill. Such a great job. Thank you, Insight Team. Carry on. As we always do at these live events, the panelists and I took questions from the audience. We don't have time to present all of them, but one was irresistible. And this will take us right through a special live edition of What's Up and the end of our coverage. By the way, the trivia contest winner you'll hear about won more than a Planetary Radio t-shirt and an iTelescope account. She'll also get that spectacular new history of spaceflight recounted through 3D images by David Iker and Brian May. Mission Moon 3D, a new perspective on the space race, is published by the MIT Press. Our last question is from you, young man. How many years do you think it'll be until we will have a sustainable society on Mars? You know, never say never. Um, Mars, Bill is right in pointing out, is a really hard place to live. It's why there aren't people living here on Earth at the South Pole or in Antarctica year-round. Nobody lives there. Nobody's got a family there to raise kids because it's just not a very nice place. So take Antarctica, except take away the air, and you've got living on Mars. So, you know, is it going to happen? I don't know. I've got a bet with uh, Bill that in the next 10,000 years, not only will humans live on Mars, but we'll terraform it. We bet a Canadian $5 bill on that. So we'll, you know, put that in escrow and see if it happens in 10,000 years. But I don't know. What do you guys think? Is Mars going to be a place to call home, Bruce? Uh, Possibly, but far off in the future, I would say. I mean, first there'll be more exploration, understanding eventually humans getting there. But to actually set up a sustainable society would be incredibly challenging. Uh, I don't know. I tend to be pretty terrible at predicting the far future, so I'll I'll turn it over to others. You know what they say about prediction? It's it's really hard to do, especially about the futures. (laughs) Old line. Troy? Oh, right. there, I mean, there's the two major aspects to that is technology and willpower. Right. You know, how, how, how much do we want to, to do that? And then is the technology available to make it happen? Making a sustainable, self-contained environment like they have on the space station is not easy. And we all often have to resupply the space station from Earth. If we perfect the ability to maintain a livable environment in space, it might be preferable to stay in space and to use asteroids and comets for resources. Mars, like Earth, is way down at the bottom of a gravity well. Once you go there, there are certainly advantages to being on the surface of a planet, but it may not be as useful as living out in space. So um, technology-wise, probably for a sustainable, large-scale society, 100 years, I would hazard to guess. But by that time, we may not want to live on Mars. We may want to just live in space. Jennifer? Oh, only to add that I think the, the InSight mission, the one that we've just witnessed, the landing, successful landing, will give us a better sense for what kind of interior uh, resources we would have available. That is an unknown right now if there is 
let's say, liquid water flowing underneath the surface, if that can be tapped. So would you like to live on Mars? Well, it depends. <laughs> That's a good answer. Good answer. <laughs> what benefits do you get? <laughs> uh, there's a man with uh, business in mind. Uh, half is, I, we're going to introduce you to Elon Musk. It's, it's easier to do, I mean, we're, we grew up in gravity. It's easy to do certain things in gravity that are really hard to do in microgravity. So that's an advantage. Mm -hmm. We're going to let Jennifer Jackson and Troy Hudson exit the stage now. Thank you so much, the two of you, Our for pleasure. being part of this. Yes, and uh, it was a pleasure to share it with you. Thanks so much. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Bruce, come on over. Thank you, Jennifer. Okay, we are going to go into that uh, segment that has closed Planetary Radio right from its start 16 years ago yesterday, and that is the What's Up segment. And so here with me is the Chief Scientist for the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts. Welcome. Thank you. For the good, second time. Good to be here, man. <laughs> okay, well, let's start as we always do. What's up in the night sky? All right, well, I'd encourage everyone after this amazing Mars landing to go out tonight or tomorrow night whenever you have a chance in a clear sky and see Mars. Mars is visible in the early evening in the south, looking like a bright reddish star. It's still fading as we get farther away from it, but it still looks like a bright reddish star. Saturn is to its lower right, getting pretty low, but you can still see it low in the west soon after sunset, looking like a yellowish star. And then in the uh, pre-dawn, we've got Venus looking just dominating, super bright in the east, and it is near the moon on December 3rd. And then the one that's a little tough to see, Mercury, coming up uh, in the next couple weeks. And December 5th, Mercury looking like a bright star, but not nearly as bright as Venus, to the lower left of Venus. Mercury will be near the moon on December 5th. I just luck looking up at that little orange wandering star, uh, uh, yeah. the, red, the red planet. Now you can think about, whoa, there's a new lander there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we move on to this week in space history. It happens there are two significant dates in Mars exploration history. Mariner 4, the first successful flyby of Mars. It launched in this week in 1964, and Mars Pathfinder, successful lander, launched in 1996 in this week. Mariner 4 gave us those first lunar-looking uh, images, right, that depressed a lot of people. Yeah, and Mariner 4 and then 6 and 7, all flybys happened to see the heavily cratered parts of Mars and missed the big giant volcanoes, canyons, and uh, evidence of water, which we then got from Mariner 9 in the early 70s. Okay, we're going to get some help for this next uh, bit. All right, so on three, I want you all to say random space fact. One, two, three. Random, random space fact. Well done. Well done. So InSight has landed approximately 550 kilometers from the Curiosity rover or about the distance from Pasadena to Sacramento, or LA to San Francisco. All right, we're ready to go on to the uh, more interactive portion of what's up, I think. Let's go ahead and do, uh, finish the contest, uh, the question that you gave people a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, all right, so I asked you, what were the most advanced creatures to fly around the moon on Zond 5, the first mission to fly around the moon and return to Earth successfully. And a bit more about Zond 5? Wasn't one of ours. No, it's the Soviet Zond 5, and it did a, 
uh, trajectory where it went, flew around the moon, came back, and then returned the return capsule into Earth's atmosphere successfully, was the first to do so, and it flew various forms of life on the mission. So the question was not the bacteria or the other little guys, but what were the, what were the bigger guys that flew on Zond 5? How'd we do? We got, I think, the biggest response we've ever gotten for the contest. We uh, have a winner, I think, chosen by random.org, as all of our winners who have the right, uh, the right response have. Nicole Martinez in Wausau, Wisconsin. I think I pronounced that correctly, thanks to a company that used to advertise in there. She says that in the little menagerie on Zon 5, yeah. there were two tortoises. Indeed, two Russian tortoises that uh, came back healthy. They lost 10% of their body weight, but they gained it back. Probably have other people you've, you've mentioned complaints about my technical biological terminology. Yeah, um, I mean, Nicole listed a whole bunch of these creatures that were along for the ride on Zon 5, flatworms, mealworms, uh, and even some things called wine flies. And she says, I imagine you could argue that wine flies might have more advanced tastes than the uh, tortoises. <laughs> All right, sure. Anyway, going on, because we often read a few of the responses that we get from some of the other people who entered the contest but didn't win, I'm sorry to say. Laura Dodd in Eureka, California. She and a lot of people took you to task for calling out the tortoises as the most advanced forms of life that were on Zon 5. She said the tortoises above Zon 5 were likely the most advanced life forms by some definitions, though the other critters and plants that were on board might think that this no notion is pretty vertebratist. That's <laughs> uh, not the first time I've been called vertebratist. Nathan Hunter in Vancouver, Washington, he said Bruce should have owned up to his anthropocentric biases and just stated the question as, who were my closest relatives to fly on Zon Oh! Oh! I am shell-shocked. <laughs> Daniel Socken, Forest Hills, New York, he says, I guess the tortoise beat the hare in this moon race. Those tortoises even beat the humans on Apollo 8 to the moon by a few months. They did indeed. The first living things to go around the moon and yep. come back. Yeah. Mark Timoney in Belfast, Northern Ireland, United Kingdom. According to a tortoise expert, the average lifespan of a Russian tortoise is 50 to 80 years. I wonder if they're still alive. If you're listening to this show, Russian tortoises <laughs> from Zon 5, write into Matt. You, you speak a little Russian, don't you? Could you repeat that in Russian? I... No, I couldn't, but I... Svite, <laughs> tortoises! Magdala! I'm done, that's it. All right, oh, finally... Poor Galen Drinnen in Toronto, Ontario, who's going to be sad because you kind of stole her joke. With atmospheric reentry as intense as it is, is it fair to call this a case of, for the tortoises, shell shock? Let's yes, hear it for Galen, in spite of the fact that her joke is here. Thank you. Okay, before we give the question for the audience at home, let's go ahead and do the ones for the people who are left here in uh, Beckman Auditorium. And I All have right. some shirts. So, first question, how many orbiters are currently working at Mars? Currently functional orbiters at Mars. Six. Six is correct. Yay. Give her a hand. Opened like a Martian parachute. Okay, next. If you were paying attention, this one should be easier. How many legs does InSight have? 
Let's see who gets there first. It's you, sir. Three. Three yes, layers. that is correct. <laughs> From where did Insight launch? Vandenberg Air Force Base. Yes. You got it. What was the, well, oh, it's too easy. Oh, what the heck. What was the last successful landing on Mars before Insight? Last successful landing. Jim Bell, don't you know any of these? <laughs> uh, curiosity? Yes, that is correct. Terrific. Congratulations. And the last question. This one's going to be a little more complicated to phrase. What superhero's alter ego has a name that is almost identical to the principal investigator of Insight? <laughs> We're looking for the superhero. Rather. Somebody ran right up. Bruce Banner? Yes, and Bruce he Banner. is, becomes? The Hulk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very good. So Bruce Banner, DT at the end, is the principal investigator. Right, we should throw you a comic book, but there's your shirt. All right, what have you got for the folks at home? For the folks at home, <laughs> what do the Insight Lander and some warriors from the Middle Ages have in common. Hmm. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Wow. I have one thing in mind. Our creative listeners may come up with others that we'll accept, but one thing in mind, insight and war some warriors from the Middle Ages. What do they have in common? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have until Wednesday, December 5th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer to this latest question and maybe win yourself a Planetary Radio t-shirt. And you can check those out in the Planetary Society store at chopshopstore.com or actually end a 200-point itelescope.net account. iTelescope is that nonprofit worldwide network of telescopes that you can use to take a look at the red planet up close. And uh, we've got a great relationship with them. You can also donate that 200-point uh, account uh, for use by uh, underprivileged kids somewhere around the world. Okay, we are done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about relaxing in a lawn chair on the plains of uh, Elysium, Planitia, next to the Insight Lander. Thank you, and good night. Sounds good to me. Thank you, Bruce. And just to wrap up, I'll see you around the office, of course, and on the next episode of Planetary Radio. It's time for us to end our celebration of Insight and we have lots of people to thank, beginning with our wonderful panelists. As you heard, Jennifer Jackson and Troy Hudson. Could we get another hand for them? I also want to thank the great tech staff here at Beckman Auditorium. I want to thank Emily and Bill, Emily Lakdawalla and Bill Nye, the CEO of the Planetary Society, for joining us. And finally, speaking for Bill Nye and all of us at the Planetary Society, we are especially grateful to our partner here today, Caltech. Can we hear it for the California Institute of Technology? Go Beavers! <laughs> and special thanks to Caltech's Director of Strategy and Special Projects, Shana Chabner. I'm Matt Kaplan, hoping you will join us next week for another weekly episode of Planetary Radio. Please visit us at planetary.org and look for us across social media as the Planetary Society. Thank you for joining us on this great day for exploration. Ad Astra and Ad Aries.